Amen. Thank you, buddy. So we are starting, or we just started a, a section on apologetics, and my original intent was kind of to revisit some material I had presented, um, but Bing will tell you, if you try to re-preach a sermon, you'll start going through it and find that you, you know, you can't just rehash it. And so here I thought I was going to help myself a little bit by, by being able to source my own previous material. It's not turning out that way. I'm just, um, you know, maybe I'm just a different person than I was 12, 13 years ago when I first hopefully. presented this. Yeah, hopefully I am a different person. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I wanted to start, last week we kind of gave an, uh, an overall picture of the most important thing about apologetics is you. I mean, it's your heart in putting the Lord first and caring enough about the salvation of others um, to want to share the message of salvation with them with gentleness and fear, as we talked about in First Peter 3, 15 and 16. Um, so the most important thing about apologetics is not how much you know. It's not about all the arguments that you have for the existence of God. It's not whether you went to seminary or Bible college. It's do you yourself fear the Lord, love the Lord, want to honor the Lord? And do you love other people enough to share the gospel with them? So I'll get your question in just a second. <laughs> um, so the, the next question I had, or my, the next thought I had then, is uh, so often we think of, at least I do, of apologetics as a persuasion of people um, to, to win people. And of course, there's a very famous book written in 1936 called How to Win Friends and Influence People, written by Dale Carnegie. Has anyone here ever read that book? You, you've read the book. Okay. So... This book uh, was published in 1936, sold more than 30 million copies. And the Library of Congress, actually, in uh, 2013, it ranked it the seventh most influential book in American history, which is quite an achievement. Um, Carnegie, Dale Carnegie, who had no relation to Andrew Carnegie, who's a very you know, famous figure in American history, um, although Dale Carnegie changed the spelling of his last name to match Andrew Carnegie's. So he... He spelled his name Carnegie like G-E-Y, whereas, you know, Andrew Carnegie is G-I-E. So he switched it, a little bit of a marketing thing. Um, anyway, um, Dale Carnegie was a, a writer and speaker, and he, he did have kind of a, a knack for getting to know people. Um, and so he, you might say now that he had like a high emotional IQ. Uh, not that he wasn't smart in other ways, but he could really understand and relate to people. And so he would give these lectures and seminars on, on how to deal with people. And he would apply it to leadership. He'd applied it to business management. So he'd go on all these speaking tours. And eventually, um, a stenographer wrote down his lectures. And out of it was birthed this book. Now, I have not read this book either. But I've, I've seen so many um, different like points and, and, and summaries of the book. But when you read them, there's nothing there that you would disagree with, even as a believer. So it's not saying, you know, if you want to win friends and influence people, you got to sacrifice a chicken to this God. There's nothing like weird, occultic. Um, there's nothing in it that's, uh, strictly speaking, unbiblical. You have basically tenets of good communication skills, good listening skills, be empathic towards people, care about what they're saying, don't bully them or push them to be in a situation where they feel defensive because then they won't listen to what you have to say. N none of it is, is really, in a way, startling in terms of its observations and its ideas. Um, and it obviously, you know, sparked many people to refer to it and to use its prim principles in, in business, even in churches and ministry. In fact, uh, I, I can't tell you how many sermons and devotionals are titled or have that kind of tagline, how to win friends and influence people for the Lord, right? And apologetics is one of those things where it can sound like we are trying to, you know, win friends and influence people for the Lord, now the question is, or what, got, what I got to thinking was, how does God persuade people? How does he win friends and influence folks in the Bible? Is there a best-selling system to ensure that when we give a defense of our faith that, that, uh, for the hope that lies within us, that people are going to respond to it? Right? Is there something we can prepackage? Is there a formula that guarantees results or your money back? 
Now, there have been throughout church history many people who've claimed that kind of thing, a silver bullet, a, a way to just, if you do evangelism this way, if you use these kinds of arguments, if you have this kind of ministry, you can win friends and influence people. But when we start to look at how people are persuaded in the Bible, it paints a much different picture. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to go through three different people in the Old Testament uh, to get an idea of how God does or doesn't persuade people. And you might find, and, and I realized as I was sitting here, and this happens a lot, I'll be sitting there and either the music or the prayer time will just make me think of, of a whole bunch of things to add to, my, to the sermon. I try to rein myself in. I realized that after this, it might sound like um, you, you might sound like there's no real magic formula. I'll give, you, I'll give you that up front. You probably figured it out. There is no magic formula. But in saying that, I, I think I don't want to be critical or even dismissive of things like being a good communicator, being a good listener. Those are all biblical principles. But why you do them is not to win friends and influence people per se. The reason that we're like decent human beings to each other and show kindness and empathy and love people enough to listen to them is because we want to, not because of an agenda, okay? So I'm going to say that right now because when we go through this, I think like me, you're going to be kind of shocked. Like, wait a second, how could this not persuade someone? So first person we're going to look at, and we could do this all through many characters of the Bible. Let's go to Moses, iconic character. You all know him. You're very familiar with who he is. Um, Let's go to where he is commissioned by God in Exodus chapter 3. Now, I, I have almost an inclination to do the whole, whole chapter, both chapters, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it down a little bit. So you already know the beginning of Exodus, you kind of very quickly uh, build up. Moses is born. He is uh, raised in the, coat, uh, the courts of Pharaoh. He has this privileged position within the court, so to speak, to be raised as a prince of Egypt. Uh, and then he sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, and he intervenes. Um, he ends up killing that Egyptian. And, um, and because of that, there's a little bit more to it, but because of that, he flees into the desert. So he turns his back on the whole Egyptian court. He even, to a certain degree, turns his back on the Jewish people. So realize that when he goes into the desert, um, he is turning his back both on Egypt and on the Israelites. So he's off, he's doing his own thing. I would not consider at this point that Moses is what we would call like a saved man, that he is someone who has put saving faith into God yet. So Exodus 3 and 4 you would think is where Moses is persuaded by the Lord to serve him and to love him. There's some question marks here. <clears throat> now, it sets up where Moses, he is tending flocks. He's married a gal by the name of Zipporah. He is now tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, and he is up in the mountains, and very iconic picture. What does he encounter? This burning bush, right? It's not consumed. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed like a log in your fireplace. And so it's, it's the Lord himself in the bush communicating to Moses. And he begins in verse 7 after introducing himself. He says, I have surely seen the affliction. This is uh, Exodus 3, 7. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. So he points out to Moses, I've seen what's been happening to the Jewish people. And then he says, verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses, he knows he's a Hebrew. He knows he's Israelite. There's a burning bush that is talking to him that claims to be God and has seen the oppression of the Israelites, which Moses was very familiar with, and is now calling him to be a chosen one, to be used by God to confront Pharaoh and rescue the people of Egypt. So there's a number of things going on. There's a miraculous thing, right? Burning bush. There's a divine encounter, like with words, talking to him. There's a 
there's a persuasion of, there's a plight. There's something wrong going on that I'm going to fix. It's kind of to, to resonate with Moses' empathy for the Israelites. And then a commissioning, a direct command. I'm, you know, you come, right? I'm going to send you. So there's a direct command. That's a four or five persuasive elements to that, right? Things to persuade Moses to believe and trust in God. Does he? Well, what does he say right after? Verse 11, but <laughs> Moses said to God, so you're to know by that, but is he, is he on board? No. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, that is God, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of God, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, there's a back and forth, right? Moses starts to argue with the burning bush. Is he persuaded? No. Verse 13 and on, they go back and forth. God reveals his name, Yahweh, to him. So he's giving him a divine um, commissioning from his own divine nature, uh, um, nature to go. He gives them a promise in verse uh, 18. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of Hebrews, so on. So not only is now God being patient with Moses talking back to him, Mo uh, God is also now promising and reassuring. No, no, no. Like if you were having this discussion with a, with a spouse, okay, God is being very patient. No, no, I, 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 I will provide everything. You don't have to worry about this plan at all. I'm asking you to do this, and I'm going to be with you. I can promise the results. You're talking to a burning bush that's not being consumed. You can, you can believe this, okay? I am going to do these wonders, and it's going to be amazing. God is being very patient now with him. If, if in a way, God is following the how to win friends and influence people, pretty well. He's acknowledging that there's a problem. He's saying, I'm a God who's heard. I've listened to the prayers. I'm now communicating to you my solution to these prayers. Uh, I, I, I'm choosing you as my man. You're telling me why you can't do it. I'm telling you, I, I will help you. I will take care of it. You can do it. Very uplifting, very encouraging, very much, again, uh, what Dale Connor, yeah, yeah, Yahweh, you're doing an excellent job of uh, winning friends and influencing Moses here, okay? Um, <laughs> verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but <laughs> behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. And Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail, so he put out his hand and caught it. It became a staff in your hand. Then he also has Moses put his hand in his cloak and pull it out. It becomes leprous, right? And then he puts it back in and pulls it out, and it's clean. So God empowers Moses after he again rebuts. He's not persuaded at all. Moses now adds, he's putting um, real, let's say, money on the table. Up until now, it's just... You could say it's talk, like, ah, oh, how do I know you're good for it, God, right? So Moses, uh, God, being very patient and being very good, um, persuader and communicator, says, listen, here's how you know. Here's like a, a down payment. Here's how I can demonstrate to you. You can do these things. And gives him the power to do the miracles. He witnesses a miracle, but he also does the miracles, right? Again, God is an excellent at uh, winning friends and influencing people. So... <laughs> Verse, so, and he also says there's all going to be other signs, okay? There's going to be other signs as well. Verse 10, all right? Exodus 4, verse 10. But Moses said, again, another but. Again, Moses, again, not quite persuaded. He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now this is what we call hand-holding. And you usually don't 
kind of stoop to that. When you're trying to win friends and influence people, usually you're trying to get them to do something good for them, good for the company, whatever, good for you. But here, God is willing to basically hold his hand the entire way. <laughs> Verse 13, but he said, another one. Moses said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Now, it doesn't get any better in a way than how God treated Moses here in terms of winning friends and influencing people. It, 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 up until now, God has done everything right. He's checked like every box, right? Like what, what else could you ask? What, what else would you ask God to do? You and I, we probably at the first but would have been like, you know what? Forget you. I'm going to pick another guy. Or, you know, if it's your parent, go to your room. Like this is not a debate. This is not a negotiation. Like all of your excuses are, are bunk. So God is showing extraordinary patience, kindness, and still the audacity <laughs> for Moses to say, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And you finally have this phrase that you, I'm like waiting for it, right? Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. So he finally gets upset. He said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. So this is not even, whereas any other boss, maybe if you were facing this kind of opposition, like if a boss was telling an employee, you know, this is what you're going to do, gives them every single like benefit of the doubt and help, you know, the point where you probably like, I'm going to fire you. God still doesn't even fire him, right? It's like, I'm going to hire another guy to help you to do this. That's how committed Moses was, or God was to Moses. It's not even, I'm going to hire another guy to replace you. I'm going to hire another guy to help you, your brother. It's, it's completely not what, you know, we would generally do, any of us. And yet, does this and you'll see throughout Exodus, then all the way through the early chapters, that it's Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron. Anyway, is Moses ultimately persuaded? Okay? I am suspicious. This is, you know, I'm going through this. Does it say that Moses said, okay, that he relented, that he agreed, or anything like that? No. Now, you might say that's kind of reading between the lines. But <laughs> look what happens in verse 24 of Exodus. So they are, they're on the way to now Egypt, okay? Like, it seems like Moses has agreed to this plan. Uh, we've talked about this verse before, but at a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him, that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. What does that imply? <laughs> Was Moses persuaded yet? <laughs> was he on board with the plan yet? If God is about to strike him dead, like, and can, can Moses do the plan if he's dead? Of course not. So this is like, you know, a big deal. It's, you might think it's very peculiar, but what happens next is Zipporah circumcises their firstborn child, who at this time was probably an adult. Well, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean that Moses, who is supposed to liberate the Israelites right, and, and free them from the slavery so that they might go back into the promised land and receive the, the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, what does it mean that Moses had not done the sign of the covenant to his son, his firstborn son? Did he believe the covenant? Did he, did he think his son should have a part in that covenant? How invested was Moses into the covenant? And really everything, Exodus 3 and 4, is about what? Is God is saying, I I'm going to keep that promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're going to be the man to do it. And yet Moses, this is a little bit of reading between the line, had he really believed God and been persuaded by him, he would have circumcised his son right then and there, or as soon as he got back, because that would have shown I was wrong. God is still faithful to his people. I need to circumcise my child because I haven't even done that. I, I truly believe in this. So instead, Zipporah 
you know, insightful woman that she is, I know why. You don't really believe this because the son <laughs> has not been circumcised. So that explains, I think, that kind of weird um, little interlude between Exodus, you know, 4, 24 through 26. It's sort of significant to say Moses still was not quite persuaded even at that point. And even then, who had to do it? Zipporah, not Moses. Now, I don't want to get too far with this, but I, <laughs> when I was preparing for this, I started reading through like the whole book of Exodus, and I was trying to find the moment where you could really say Moses believed, you know, in a saving way. And, and you know, as, in, as it was told to Abraham, you know, he believed is counted as righteousness. It doesn't say that anywhere about many people in the Bible. But I was looking for just a moment where it showed like Moses was actually embracing the role that God had given him. And I got pretty far into Exodus. I was like, I don't, I don't think it's here. I don't think it's in the plagues. Like when, when is it that Moses actually is like, okay, now I'm starting to believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, I'm not saying it's not there. All I'm suggesting is, rolling back now to the premise of apologetics, God, he is God. If anyone can persuade people and win people, it should be him. He does everything, let's say, in the right, understanding, patient way. He's God. He's being very humble towards Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. He does everything right. He says everything in an understanding way. He accepts Moses' limitations. He lets Moses talked back to him over and over again. And even when Moses outright, flat out says, please send someone else, which is, no, I don't want to do it. God still, you know, <laughs> brings along someone else. No, you're absolutely going to do it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll bring another guy in to make sure you do it. it it's kind of crazy when you think about that. Was God a failure? Because he could not persuade Moses. And if God couldn't persuade Moses, what hope is there? for you and I to persuade someone. That's what, I, that's what I started thinking, right? Like, when did Moses really believe? Now, that's something for you maybe to help me out with. It's not necessarily the point anyway, uh, as far as uh, where we're going to land, but what, did, what does it take when you, let's, let's put this now to your neighbor, like you are no burning bush, right? And you do not have the power and sovereignty of God. You cannot make a promise with your neighbor or your kids or your family members about anything that you can be absolutely sure that you can keep. And you might think, well, then what's the point? <laughs> Why should I go and, and share and minister and all those things as well, right? We'll get there. But that's kind of where uh, I started going uh, in my thinking with this and why I couldn't go to some of the old material I had because I didn't, I kind of addressed this, but, but not really. So Moses, here's a man. Was he persuaded? Did God fail? What does that mean? Hold on to that for just a second. Second person, it's related, is Pharaoh. And we do this a little bit faster. <clears throat> but you have Pharaoh, and he is going to experience 10 plagues of various disasters, the last one being the death of his firstborn. Now, he's going to have Moses and Aaron speak to him the words of God. So he's going to be exposed to the word of God. He's also going to see miraculous things, both that Moses and Aaron did in his presence, in his courts, but also things like the, the Nile turning to blood and, and the darkness and the, the fiery hail and all those things. So he's going to witness miracles. Does he ultimately get persuaded? When this one, for sure, we can say no. For sure he did not, right? But he saw, in a way, the same kinds of things that Moses did. It's interesting when you think about like, you know, Moses, did God persuade Moses? No, did God persuade Pharaoh? Like, but there's a difference here, at least we'll say this. In Exodus 4.21, God knows what he's about to do with Pharaoh. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So why is Pharaoh not going to be persuaded by God in these miracles? Well, one answer is God is intentionally hardening his heart so that he won't be persuaded. We got to wrestle with that. Like God is intentionally going to uh, use his hardness of heart or harden Pharaoh's heart to demonstrate his power 
over Egypt and all these miracles and plagues. But, and he'll see it again in Exodus 7, 3, 4. Actually, there's a few times. Um, I'll harden, this is uh, Exodus 7, 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. He'll not be persuaded. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people to the children, uh, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Then Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. So his whole goal in doing this is to demonstrate his power, to save the Israelites, and to show that the Egyptians who is truly in charge. But it's not just that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look at Exodus 8, 15. This is between the second and third plagues. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, a break in the chaos of uh, the, or the frogs, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. So who, who hardened his heart? God? No, here it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And we see it again in verse 32. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go after the plague of the, the flies. So you have a both and here, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, and you could say this is the, the ultimate answer. Why wasn't Pharaoh ultimately persuaded? The simple answer is his heart was hard. Now when you ask, well, who hardened his heart? You get two answers, and uh, depending... Um, depending on your views of, say, God's sovereignty and our, you know, our, our, our will, um, we'll, we'll just affirm both that God hardened his heart, but Pharaoh hardened his heart too, and they went together. That's why he was ultimately not persuaded, despite seeing and witnessing all the same things that, that God did to Moses, right? Now, the last person I want to look at before we kind of collect our thoughts and then we'll go to the New Testament um, or parts of the New Testament, um, Daniel 4. So this is now many years later. We're talking about like a thousand years later, almost. Israel has risen and fallen, right? The kingdom was split and conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, um, and uh, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they have been taken captive and brought into Babylon to serve um, as, um, as advisors within the kingdom. So this was a common practice uh, in those days. Um, I keep forgetting, I go the wrong way here. All right. Um, that you would take the young people of a nation you conquered, and then you'd make them government officials in your kingdom, and they would get, let's say, brainwashed by your system, and then they're not ever going to turn against you, the next generation, because you've employed them all. And now, as they get older, they're going to get some benefits, they got some power, so why would they ever turn on you? It's a common strategy, even used today, frankly. Um, but uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they had made examples of themselves. You know the story, Daniel um, and his friends refused to eat the king's food, God honored that. And then when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream um, that couldn't be interpreted. Daniel was the one who could interpret it, and so he got exalted to power. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the image. They get thrown into the fiery furnace, but not a hair of their hair is burnt. Not even uh, the smell of smoke was on them. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. He issues a decree saying, their God is pretty great. <laughs> Everyone needs to agree their God is pretty, pretty great. And he gives them promotions. And we've talked about how that's a funny thing to accept a promotion from the guy who threw you into a fiery furnace. But, I mean, he had a reason now to, to fear you, and, and, in a sense, and to appreciate you. It's because you stood up for your principles, but you're still devoted to Nebuchadnezzar. At no point were they trying to undermine the government or anything. They get promotions. Daniel uh, ends up uh, being a very close friend to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, who has now seen many miracles, right? He's seen um, his dreams interpreted. He's seen three men go through a fiery furnace, come out clean. Uh, he has a dream. And uh, I'm going to just sum it up. It doesn't, the details don't necessarily matter. But the dream is that he's going to be humbled by God. And uh, he is going to 
end, uh, <laughs> he's going to end up being turned into like a beast in his mentality, in his mind. He's going to be chewing grass like a cow. His nails are going to grow long like an eagle's. He's just going to completely, uh, in a sense, mentally devolve. Um, now, this is one of the most high-profile salvation testimonies in, in the Bible, this moment here. It's actually, uh, the more I think about it, one of my favorite scenes of the Bible is this right here. I mean, if you, um, you know, as a pastor, are you allowed to have favorite moments outside of the gospel or Jesus, you know, being crucified? Yes, you are. So, but don't, don't, let me, don't, don't let me say that and you think I'm diminishing the cross. But outside of Jesus and his life and ministry, when I think of, of passages that just, um, just floor me and just attract my attention and imagination, this is one of them. Because here is the king of one of the greatest empires of the world. It's top 10, um, at least in the ancient world. Um, Nebuchadnezzar here is going to be the center of attention for God. Like God is, why is God going to be so persistent about Nebuchadnezzar? God has every reason to chuck this guy to the side. I mean, he tried to burn his most faithful servants alive. So there's, in my mind, no reason for God to put his attention on him except for his own sovereign and divine choice. Anyway, he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that he's going to be humbled in this fashion. No one can interpret the dream, so he gets Daniel. Daniel, please tell me what this dream is about. He explains it to Daniel, and we're going to pick up on the interpretation. Um, we'll start in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, was dismayed for a while because he's thinking about the dream that he was just told. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves are beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens live. So he's just describing the dream. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There's a couple notes here. Nebuchadnezzar, there's moments up leading up to this where he said some pretty great things about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he, he hasn't got it yet. He's not persuaded yet. What does Daniel say is the goal of this time of humbling where he's going to act like a beast? He said, this will happen, verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, you could say persuaded. Until he knows and is persuaded that God is the true king over all things. Despite your power, despite your influence, God is going to do this thing for you. Now, verse 24, Daniel calls it a decree. Is this maybe going to happen or is this for sure going to happen? It's for sure going to happen. It is a decree. It's a decree that you will be humbled till you know that the Lord Most High reigns. So here's, here's kind of an interesting, an interesting question. Like, God is basically commanding that he will be persuaded because he's laying out this like a prophecy, right? You are going to be humbled. You're going to become like a beast, eat grass, all this stuff for seven periods of time. Most people 
say that's seven years, but it doesn't specify. Seven periods of time, and then you will know that the Most High is the one who rules over all things. So it's a decree of being persuaded, right? Like, it, it is not a, there's not a question mark to it. Now, I know, like, this is actually a really good passage to talk about, you know, again, divine sovereignty, man's responsibility. It's interesting that, that Daniel, who has great theology, very close to God, he loves Nebuchadnezzar, because even though this is a decree, this is going to happen for sure, what does Daniel beg Nebuchadnezzar to do? Repent. <laughs> even though this is like a statement of judgment, and the goal of it is that he is going to be humbled and then glorify God, still, Daniel is not like, I want suffering to happen to you. I want this negative thing to happen. His heart is still, you know, please repent for your own sake. I think that's a great kind of um, uh, real quick application. I do think God chooses in times when people will get saved, but that does not prevent us from loving people enough to say, repent. You know, it, 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 it's God's sovereignty in knowing negated Daniel's sincere, heartfelt plea and love for Nebuchadnezzar forestall this judgment, <laughs> even though it's for sure. I think you can find parallels to Jesus, even with Judas, giving many warnings about, I know who's going to betray me. What was Jesus' point in saying that? I think in one sense, it's like, Judas, don't do this. But does Judas have to do it? He does. It just, I don't know. <laughs> you have to just accept that in your heart, in your, in your attitude towards unbelieving friends, family, whoever. You can, you can love them enough to call them to repent, even if, you know, they're not going to be saved. I don't know. Like, it, it doesn't negate that. I, I think one thing we need to be very careful of when we talk about apologetics and evangelism is to think, well, because God chooses and stuff anyway, who cares? Like, what, what's my duty or obligation? Well, you know, you, you can still love them. You should still love them and show pity and compassion like, like Daniel did. So God being sovereign and decreeing takes away zero from Daniel, saying repent. All right, now that's a total aside. That's not um, necessary to do with our main subject uh, here. But does this come to pass? Yes, it does. Um, it all comes to pass. He's actually just, you know, out on his balcony saying, I'm so awesome. It's like, like what, what, man, I'm so great. And then at that moment, boom, voice from heaven, your kingdom's departed for you, driven among men, and, and, uh, and he becomes this beast uh, in the field. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven from man, ate grass like an uh, ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So it, it happened to him just as, as it was prophesied, as it was decreed. The way Daniel 4 ends, at the end of the days, it's Nebuchadnezzar's first person point of view. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble was nebuchadnezzar persuaded let's say that sounds really good this is not what moses said <laughs> in exodus 3 or 4 certainly not what pharaoh said i think personally and commentators debate about this did nebuchadnezzar genuinely put faith in the god of abraham isaac and jacob I think he did. I think we're going to see him in heaven. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't, well, I think the story here is, is certainly a redemptive one. Maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't, for apologetics in the sense of persuading people. I see here a, a circumstance where, where God has by his decree sovereignly 
persuaded Nebuchadnezzar by humbling him to see God as he truly is. Did Nebuchadnezzar, again, this is one of those balanced things. It was going to take seven periods of time for him to come to that realization. Why didn't he come to it sooner? That was God's decree. Could it have been later? No, it was God's decree. When he says, I, uh, my reason returned to me, is that a statement of something he did? No, it sounds like it's something the Lord allowed the reason to return to him, and his response was this praise of God. Um, and at the same time, my reason returned to me. So it was sort of simultaneous. You know, the realization came exactly at the time God said, was it Nebuchadnezzar who came to the realization? Was it God who gave him? I don't know, both and, I guess. Um, what had Nebuchadnezzar seen? He had seen dreams. He had seen miracles. He had seen devotion from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Um, and he had personally been humbled by God. Now, let, let's add up all the different things that God did to persuade people that we've seen. I mean, we've seen miracles. We've seen God directly talking. We've seen God showing pity and compassion. We've seen a little bit of anger. We've seen a lot of different ways that God tries to persuade people. We've seen humbling. Is there any necessary correlation of God persuading people and a certain result? No, it doesn't seem like it because he did really crazy things that should make anybody want to believe him to Pharaoh, but he didn't. We even saw him do a lot of crazy things for Moses, and at least it doesn't seem like initially Moses was persuaded. Now, you could say lesser things happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and what did he do? He did, I think, get it. I don't think there's a magic formula. It doesn't mean you don't do or should not do what you need to do as a Christian, and that's kind of what we're going to expand on in our times together. It doesn't mean that you don't preach the gospel. It doesn't mean you don't show humility and respect. It doesn't mean that you don't have good uh, articulations for the doctrines we believe. It doesn't mean you don't try to be winsome. It doesn't mean you don't try to be bold and confront lies and false doctrines. But is anything a guarantee of a certain result? I don't, I don't think so. And that's something that we need to understand to temper some of our expectations when it comes to apologetics and persuading people. And you could do this. You can go through the Bible. You go to Saul. You could go to Jonah. You could go to Cyrus. <clears throat> you could go to New Testament figures, Pontius Pilate, Saul slash Paul. You go to the Jewish governors and the unbelievers in the book of Acts. You can go through, and you would basically have a list of the most bizarre and various kinds of interactions, you know, miracles, speeches, divine intervention. Um, and you'd come to the same conclusion that there is no formula to people getting saved and acknowledging God. Some seem to get, some people in the Bible seem to get every evidence that God exists and that they need to repent, like the Pharisees, and they still refuse. I mean, they had every chance. They spoke with the Son of God in the flesh. They witnessed his miracles, and they still rejected them. And then you have a guy like the Ethiopian eunuch. who's coming back from um, uh, Pentecost, right, in Acts, and he gets like a five-minute, I don't know if it's five minutes, he gets this quick Bible study in Isaiah. You know, Philip shows up, asks him, hey, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Isaiah. I can't figure this out. Oh, Philip says, let me explain that to you and how this uh, is revealing Messiah. And then the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, what prevents me from being baptized? So here you have a pretty quick interaction, I think, versus three years of the Pharisees interacting with, talking with Jesus. Pharisees are not persuaded. Ethiopian eunuch, just, he's ready to be baptized, right? then and there. There is no apologetic formula if even God himself can't seem to persuade a man like Moses, even. The reason we do what we do is not so much because we're trying to get to a certain result. I think that's the, one of the biggest lessons you can learn about apologetics. The reason to do this, and I know we talked about it last week, but I'm just emphasizing now with the example. The reason we do this is because we're not trying is not because we're trying to get a result of more bodies in the pews, more decision cards signed, you know, more Christians being saved, more baptisms. The goal is not to win friends and influence people. The goal is not 
to get more people saved per se. Our goal in apologetics is to honor the Lord. It is plain and simple. It is to do what God would have us do. And that means that when we do share the gospel, we do it by speaking the truth in love. We do it by um, making bold proclamations about the truth. We do it by our acts of charity. We do it by speaking clearly uh, about the things we believe. We, we do all those things. So I'm not negating, again, you go back to you know, Dale Carnegie's book. I wouldn't probably disagree with 99% of the things in there. But the goal is not to win friends. It's not to get people to do what you want or to save them. Because clearly, that's all God's prerogative. It's God's plan and purpose. So one of the things that I think is very freeing about all of this, because I, I even talked talking with some of you after the study last week, is some people would say, well, apologetics is not for me. It's not really my cup of tea. I don't really, you know, really equipped for that. Um, but all we're really talking about is a settled rest and conviction that the Lord saves whom he wills, and all we're doing is just trying to be faithful. And you can reduce a lot of things about the Christian faith to that. Maybe you're not going to be a Bible teacher. Maybe you're not going to be a pastor. Maybe you're not going to be a pastor's wife. You know, maybe you're, you're not going to lead a, a study or, or a missionary trip. But all of you can be faithful. You must be faithful. God can use that to serve him. Next time, next time, we're going to expand on this. We're not done with the subject. We're going to get down to why then did Moses or Pharaoh or others reject, despite God being so persuasive, right? I'd argue God is the, can be absolutely the most persuasive, but why doesn't he just save everyone? Why doesn't he persuade everyone? And it's to help us understand something about sin. That's why. We need to understand the blinding effect of sin. We need to understand how sin is illogical. It makes us crazy. That's the explanation. It's not people are, are, are dumb. It's not that you failed to give a good you know, answer to a question about Christian doctrine. It is sin. It's a moral issue that, um, that is the problem here. So despite everything God said to Moses, why didn't Moses submit and obey? Was he not hearing the words? Was he not understanding what he's calling to do? Was he not in his heart um, uh, acknowledging the, the pain of his people? It was just plain old sin and selfishness. That's why. It was selfish and sinful. That's why. So we'll talk about that. That will hopefully make sense um, of, of some of the, the push against being persuaded even by the Lord. So, yeah. Oh, your mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. True. Yeah. So us going to church and you becoming a pastor trying to bring trying to bring as much people in uh, people to Christ as yeah, you can make more money. So because if that's what we're going because just to honor the Lord, people people buy that. Well, I mean, I would not be apparently very good at that. I mean, there's so many things I could say if I just wanted to pack pews. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Yeah. Well, I I think. I mean, I, I don't know except to say that ha, have I ever conducted myself in a way that I'm going to try and, you know, uh, people please make a big crowd. If I, I don't even know if I could if I tried. So I don't think I'm that skilled or talented to, to, to spin, a, you know, spin you guys into like a, a big multi-level marketing scheme. I don't, I don't think I'm that good. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but I, to be fair to your mom, though, are there churches and ministries and pastors like that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, ab absolutely there, there are. Um, that, that's why I, I hope I never come across, or any pastor here, and I don't think we do, um, presenting Christianity like there's a five-step formula to, like, success. And I can, um, anyone that's guaranteeing results is a liar. And that's not just here, but like in like dieting and, and fitness and everything else, like, you know, uh, education. If someone is saying, I can guarantee a result, you get that in writing, get that insured, you know, so that when, you know, it doesn't, you can get your money back. You know what I mean? Um, because there, it's not like that. Nothing in life is, is like that. Um, the goal is not to um, persuade people per se. People will be persuaded. 
Okay, so that's different, right? People will be persuaded, but my goal is not. And we're going to talk about that next time because 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 are pretty clear about that. You know, where's the debater of this age? I've, I've confounded the wisdom of the wise and so on. So in a way, God is saying, I'm exactly trying to show that it's not just persuasive techniques, you know, that, that you just got swindled into being a Christian like a Scientology or whatever, you know, almost got swindled into being, you know, a Scientologist because I was just going in a mall and the guy's just passing out books, right? I felt sorry for him because he was there with this huge cart and this huge mound of books. So I went over talking, this is just in high school, out of pity. He's, but he's given out Dianetics, which is a, a book by um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, you know. And I got on a list that they did not stop pestering me about for years and years and years and years. Huh? I, I mean, I called them a bunch of times to like take me off the stop calling me. I just, I just felt sorry for the poor guy. But you know, you know, you, you, you're not careful and you'll get swindled into something very easily. Um, that, that is not it. I mean, and that's why we have to be very careful. You know, and Paul was very careful to not ever be accused of manipulating people into believing the gospel. Um, there are certain church movements and ministries and pastors where I, I think you get very close to saying they're trying to manipulate people into, into trusting the Lord. I mean, no, that's not right. You know, through music or through programs or this and that, uh, we need to be free of that kind of accusation. And ultimately, that's the nice thing about being, let's say, Calvinistic, is we're saying, you know, we really do believe God is ultimately the one that has to grant salvation, but at the same time, does not negate. Somehow, way, does not negate my responsibility to love people, share the truth with them, walk alongside them, and so on. So um, we just have to live, you know, some people will not be persuaded by words. So you can tell your mom this or that, but what's the fruit, you know? What's, what, what's the fruit um, of this ministry or my life or your life? And uh, that's also very valid um, thing that God uses. In fact, that is what God used in Nebuchadnezzar's life, is Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, just men of conviction who just, you know, try to serve as faithfully as they could, got into, put into a bad situation, um, and, and ended up still being deferential to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Lord. So, all right, we're going to expand on that next time we're together. Let me pray, we'll close. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have, um, you have persuaded us. You have won us over, and I think a lot of us could say it was despite ourselves that uh, we did have a heart that was inclined towards sin and self, and that you had to break through with that. And so we thank you that in your grace you can. You can make us your children. You can make us wise, um, truly godly wise. So we thank you for your faithfulness towards sinners in that way. And pray, Lord, that we would be able to encourage each other with these words, to think upon people that we love, pray for their salvation, and then uh, to understand that you're just calling us to be faithful. It doesn't matter if we feel like we're very eloquent or not. You're just calling us to be faithful to them and demonstrate uh, God's truth and God's um, holiness in our, in our daily lives and actions and attitudes. So help us to do that. And we thank you, Lord, for providing everything we need uh, for that, uh, including the food that we have for us. Lord, you, you've provided everything we need for life and godliness. So may we use it all to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.